continuing today in our sermon series, looking at how we are asked to reframe the way that we walk through our lives through the lens of the scripture, through the lens of God's values and kingdom. And so one of the things that we have been talking about is how as we are people who want to align our values and and the way that we live with God's kingdom values, we have to acknowledge that eternity is not something that's going to happen only later on, right? The eternity by definition is a time that is forever. It encompasses all things, which means that even now we are present within eternity, which means that even now we are called and welcomed into living by the values that God has intended for community, for creation, for the whole world, for the whole time. So, you know, it's just a light topic is what I'm saying. We're not really like digging deep or anything. That was a joke. Uh, So today we're continuing by looking at our parables, and today we're looking at the parable, it's often called the parable of the rich fool. Uh, I might argue that that's actually probably a pretty good title, but it's also the parable of the arrogant hoarder. So today we're looking at Luke 12, and as we come into Luke 12, um, Jesus is coming out of this time where he's been teaching for an extended period of time. And then in the midst of his teaching, you know, he has people who call out out of the crowd or people who ask him questions in his inner circle. This time he has someone in the crowd who calls out to him. He says this, someone in the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus replied, man, who appointed me a judge and arbiter between you? Then he said to them, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. And Jesus told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And then I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, You have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, you fool. This very night, your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich toward God. Told you it was a fun one today. Why don't we bow our hearts together in prayer? As we tune our ears to your presence, God, we know that we are imperfect people who hear things imperfectly, who say things imperfectly. We know that we are people who have long held thoughts and long held beliefs. And that it's very difficult to come to you with all of those beliefs and thoughts in our hands and ask for you to take them, to transform them, to pour new life into them. And so we ask God that today we might, through all of the things that invite us to be resistant, that we might be open-hearted towards you. We ask God that you will give us some new insight, that you will press away the distractions and that we will see in your scriptures, once again, that hope that you have always intended for all of creation. 
So we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So my friends, the Hebrew word for soul is nephesh. Say it with me, nephesh. And what's interesting about nephesh is that in the understanding of the Hebrews, there was no division between spirit and body. Instead, they understood that the spiritual and physical were of the same substance. They were inextricably intertwined with one another. So for the Hebrews, the soul, the nephesh, doing so good. The nephesh is the indissolvable composite of the body and the spirit. And this is really significant to keep in mind when we are reading all of the scriptures. Because our society today often says differently. Our society today often speaks about the soul as though it is completely separate from the body, as though the spirit can be separated from the physical world. And this sentiment, it's expressed in a variety of ways, even today. Sometimes people will speak about the body and the spirit warring against one another. You know, the heart wants what it wants, right? Or the body really wants something, but you know it's not good for you. That's a common way that we talk about the separation between spirit and the physical. Sometimes people will say that the gospel is a spiritual gospel, that what we read in scriptures is only having to do with heaven and the unseen rather than the practical day-to-day things of daily living. Not long after Jesus was in Nazareth, there were people called the Gnostics who believed that the body was wicked and that the spirit was pure. And so they would deny and they would punish their bodies, cloaking everything about the physical world in this sense of distrust because they wanted to pursue spiritual purity. So they thought if they punished the physical, then that spiritual will be left untouched. In recent times, we have seen this division between the spirit and the physical world come up almost daily in the way that we talk about caring for creation, caring for our planet and everything in it, including humanity that is all around the world. The Gnostics of today insist that we don't need to tend to the planet. Sorry, that was super cute. Uh, We don't need to tend to the planet. We don't need to attend to adverse human circumstances around the globe because they believe that one day all of creation is going to be destroyed and it's going to be replaced with some spiritual earth. And so why take care of things now? But Jesus, who was a Jew, he didn't perceive the world as the Gnostics did. He didn't preach a spiritual gospel that was disconnected from our spiritual or physical existence. Jesus understood that the the soul was nephesh, that the spirit, oh, that was good. Here we go. Lead us all, Todd. I know, I know, I set you up for failure there. (laughs) Sorry about that one. Jesus understood that the soul was nephesh and that the spirit was inextricably intertwined with our physical bodies and with our physical experience, which is probably why, and this is a fact, Jesus spoke more about money than Jesus spoke about prayer. Because to Jesus, how we interact with money and possessions and things was as much of a direct expression of our spirit as it was an expression of our physical wallets, ethics, values, and morals. 
Honestly, the fact that Jesus said more about money than he said about prayer makes me wonder if the way that we interact with our money and our physical resources is a better indicator of the state of our soul than the frequency that our prayer life might indicate. If we look really closely at our scripture for today, there's several interesting things that I want us to notice. We're going to jump right in. It says right at the beginning, someone in the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. And Jesus has this really funny response, or at least it's not intuitive to how I would see it. Jesus replies, man, who appointed me a judge or arbiter between you? And then he says to them, watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. What? This guy is only asking him to split the inheritance with his brother. So as is true with all the parables, these parables, they're not intended to be separated out of the context that they occur in. That's what a parable is. It's Jesus using an everyday circumstance to illustrate an eternal truth. And leading into our parable for today, we have this man calling out to Jesus, seeking help for what appears to be this justice issue. And we have Jesus replying to him with discontent, with annoyance almost. Why? This man was asking Jesus as a rabbi to arbitrate between he and his brother, which means if we think about the social structure of that time, that this man was most likely the younger brother of the sibling pair. Because back then, if the father died without a will, the sons would divide up the assets between each other. And so long as the older brother agreed to however it was divisioned, the estate was immediately settled between the two. You didn't need lawyers, you didn't need judges. And so this younger brother, unable to get his older brother to agree to how he wanted the division to be made of his father's property, he comes to Jesus to help. But he's not wanting Jesus to fairly arbitrate the dispute and come to his own conclusion. Rather, we hear him saying to Jesus, tell my brother to divide it with me. Tell my brother to do it the way I want it to be done. He wants Jesus to command his older brother to do what he wants him to do. And so it's this expression of self-informed, self-serving justice that Jesus reacts to in the brash way that he does. It's this man's arrogant assumption, presumption, that one-sided justice is permissible. That any person should see to oneself first, regardless of others in the room, regardless of the situation. It's that kind of an attitude that sees to number one first that leads Jesus to tell this story about a self-informed, self-serving man who doesn't have to dispute his wealth with anybody. He starts the parable with this. He says, the ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. And it's really important to note first, very quickly off the bat, that the primary subject of this sentence is not the rich man. The primary subject of this sentence is the ground the earth. It doesn't say that the rich man did anything special or extra to gain this new bumper crop. It doesn't say that he planted extra or used better fertilizer or brought in more help. It says that the ground did more on its own, by chance, by luck, or as we tend to believe, by God's blessing. 
But in the parable, the man, he doesn't see it that way. It says this, he says, he thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. And then he said, this is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store my surplus grain. And I will say to myself, self, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. Now, my friends, what words did we hear repeated the most in those few sentences? I, me, mine, self. In a short three sentences, this rich man manages to say I six times and my five times. There is no mention of anyone else in his life, no acknowledgement of anyone who's working on his farm, no notice of others who are living in that community. And there's no mention of the God who blessed him with that bumper crop to begin with. One commentator offered this story of his own life to put this rich man into our modern day context. He tells a story about when he went to New Orleans a few, a full year after Hurricane Katrina to help rebuild the effort. And he talked about how some of the basements there were still full of water. There were cockroaches everywhere. And the Ninth Ward, which was the poorest neighborhood of New Orleans, was basically wiped out. He says, now back when the hurricane hit, thousands upon thousands of people were dislocated from their homes and they sought refuge in nearby cities in the suburbs. And churches and people opened up their houses and their homes for people to stay in to help them get back on their feet. And he talked about how he imagined, even though all of these people did this, he imagined how they almost couldn't help to do it. He says, if you were living in one of these nearby cities and the disaster happened and you were out there sitting on your back porch drinking your lemonade and you thought to yourself, I have two extra bedrooms, an extra car and a cupboard full of food. I don't know what I could do with this stuff. Oh, well. He says, none of the people were asking that. None of them could do it. And he said, of course, they, no one would have done it because we're not bad people. We would never intentionally leave someone else out in need. Unless, unless somehow we had managed to isolate ourselves so effectively from the community around us. Unless we were so oblivious to what others were doing, what others were struggling with. Here's the point of what I am trying to say. Our rich man in our parable used his wealth to isolate himself from the larger world around him. He had isolated himself from the Talmud, from the Jewish uh, scripture, sort of commentary on scripture, where one rabbi writes, when the community is in trouble, let not a man say, I will go to my house and I will eat and drink and all will be well with me, but rather a man should share in the distress of the community. That is in the Jewish scripture. He had isolated himself from the Talmud. He had isolated himself from the friends, family, and neighbors that back in ancient uh, times would usually deliberate even over the most minor decisions before they really made a course of action forward, a course of action big like building new barns. 
He had isolated himself from his family and friends. He had isolated himself from God who had blessed the ground with a crop that surpassed his own efforts. So this rich man in his own self-serving justice concluded that all he had and that all he worked for was his alone to control and to manage, to keep and to store. After all, in his eyes, no one had helped him grow any more than he did. So it was his good fortune and it was his good fortune alone. You fool, says Jesus. This very night your life will be demanded of you. Then you will get what you have, then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with those who store up things for themselves but are not rich toward God. So it, in other words, what Jesus is saying to him is you have kept all of this for yourself where you have no connection or contact with the people around you, no awareness, no interest in the community that buys your grain, no family to inherit what you have made. What you have kept will go to waste. Because you have done this, it's good for no one, least of all you. And in spending your time gaining riches for yourself, you never learned what it meant to be rich toward God. In spending your time gaining riches for yourself, gathering for only you, you will get only you. Now, of course this storyline is a little extreme, right? It's sort of along that line of reasoning that we sometimes get in churches when people are really earnest about making sure that you have faith and they say, you might get hit by a bus on your way home, right? It's always uplifting, right? (laughs) But Jesus is creating this extreme example to bring home a really extreme point that how we view and use our money and possessions cannot be separated from our spirit and our soul. How we use the things that we are blessed with is an expression of the spirit within us. Eugene Peterson sums this up a lot better than I do. He says, we quit thinking of wealth as love to be shared and begin calculating wealth as power to be used. We reinterpret our wealth and position as something that we are in charge of and others as the poor that we must organize and direct and guide. As we do it, it feels good. We are in charge. We don't need others. We are in control. We know more than others. We have more experience. We are doing so much good. We need a bigger barn. In order to be more effective in our use of what we have, we accumulate more. We extend our influence. We become very busy doing good because when we are very busy, We don't have time for building the more demanding and difficult personal relationships of love. Building barns, which is so obviously a good thing, doesn't leave much energy left over for the time-consuming work of loving our neighbors, let alone loving our God. Friends, this younger brother, he knew what justice looked like to him. It looked like his getting all he wanted from his father's estate which he did not build or create. And he would sacrifice the relationship with his older brother to get it, which is what he was doing by asking an arbitrator to come in. The rich man knew what justice looked like for him. It looked like his keeping all that he wanted from a crop that he did not personally increase, even though no doubt that man worked hard. 
Not ever thinking to consider that those that were working alongside him, let alone those who were in need in the community. In both of these cases, these men were evaluating their wealth in isolation. The younger brother from his older brother, the rich man from his community, and they honestly believed that what was best for them was best for everyone. Because that's what self-serving justice does, my friends. It allows us to keep ourselves, to keep what we have, to remain in a position of isolation between us and the community around that huddles under the weight of burdens that they cannot bear alone. This is what self-serving justice does, my friends, because it saves us from the hard work of carrying burdens that don't belong to us. The wealth in the kingdom of God is not the wealth of the arrogant hoarder. Wealth in the kingdom of God means prioritizing our connection with people over prioritizing our connection with possessions. Wealth in the kingdom of God means not placing our wealth and possessions as a barrier between us and the needs of those around us. What I mean by that is they should never be an excuse as to why we will not help or care for someone. Maintaining a possession should not be more important than maintaining someone else's humanity. Wealth in the kingdom of God means quieting the voices inside of us that say that all that we have earned is ours and ours alone. And I have to be really honest, my friends, I hear this voice of the arrogant hoarder all around us. And I know that you do too. Conversations about entitlements and how those kind of people aren't getting my money. Conversations about culture and about how those kind of people are trying to get what isn't theirs. Conversations about weakness where weakness is scoffed at and ridiculed rather than surrounded by help and strength. Friends, if the kingdom of God is like a man who builds barns for himself only to be taken from this earth before he could enjoin them, then that is saying that the kingdom of God is a sudden intrusion upon our greed. If we want to experience life and life to the full, which is all that Jesus has ever been after. If we want to experience life and life to the full, not in some far off distant heaven, but starting now as we step closer and closer toward that time eternal. If we want to experience life to the full, then we can. But we will not be able to do it if we have all of our possessions in the way. You want to know what's really interesting? This is a really harsh passage of scripture, right? Right? You know what comes immediately after this passage? Do not worry. Do not worry about the things. Do not worry about the things you have and the things you don't have. Do not worry. For God will see to you, dress you more beautifully than any flower of the field, care for you more fully than any tiny sparrow, If this gives us a little bit of a panic attack to think about putting our possessions out of the way between us and other people, and it should, if it makes us nervous, then we need to keep reading and remember the God that we serve. Remember the God that claims us, the God who's not going to let us fall flat, miss out on life, and miss out on life to the full. If you will, join me as we pray.
God Almighty, we pray that as we consider what it means to be people that share good news, we pray, God, that you will teach us how to share that good news in every possible way, that we will share it through the way that we speak, through the way that we love, through the way that we act, through the way that we think, and that we will also share it through the way that we spend our money and use our possessions. Teach us, Lord, how we can be people who take the things that you have blessed us with and use them to love others better, to build community more effectively, to nurture the weakest in our community. Help us to take out the value judgments and the guilt of who has what and who doesn't. And instead, to surrender it to you, to your spirit, for the work of your kingdom in our lives and throughout the globe. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.